You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, Dave's last act with the boat was to. Uh, it's a long story, but put it this way, we ended up with a cargo of porcelain. Okay. Um, and I got a share of it, and that was what gave me the capital to buy half the boat. This is Martin Daly Frank. talking about how he financed the purchase Frank of the Indies trade. So, so Dave Barnett, my mentor, was an absolute pirate, and he made his money, his initial money, by... Um, taking all the uh, scrap metal off the Second World War ships, uh, mainly manganese bronze, the propellers, and the condensers, because they were steamships, and they had these big, you know, lots of copper pipe in these condensers. And, and back in the 70s, late 60s, when he was doing it, copper was like $1,000 a tonne scrap. And you could buy a house for eight for $8,000. Wow. So he'd go out, he'd go out for six weeks and come back with 30 tonnes. Whoa. That's four houses. You know, it was, a, it was a bonanza. And so this the industry trader was built specifically to do that. Okay. To, to pick up scrap off, off diving, you know, salvage. And Dave was also interested in whatever else he could liberate from the ocean floor, as he used to put it. <laughs> so he taught, he taught me a whole lot. But as it was to buy the boat off Dave, I didn't have enough money. And he wanted $100,000, which was a lot of money in 86. So I met another guy who was mad keen into treasure hunting, a rich guy, a guy called Frank Taylor, a bit of an aviation, sort of a larger-than-life legend dude. Frank, we went and did all his jobs in China and the Philippines, and we never really did that well. It looked like this, the salvage thing was going to be a, a business. All this new technology, GPS had just come out. Um, Sonar technology just was, was really accelerating. ROVs were coming in, the remote operated vehicles were coming into play, and there was so much stuff that's on the, on the, that hadn't been found in the world on the ocean floor that it looked to me like it was going to be a good, solid, proper business. You know, cargo recovery, basically, working with governments and doing it legally and all this sort of stuff. What I found was that was all these all these older guys running around with parrots on their shoulders, making really bad decisions, and there's far more money that's, there's far more money that's been raised to go treasure hunting that's ever been raised off the ocean floor. Gotcha. A, lot of, a lot of bullshit, a lot of con men. I would imagine a yeah. lot of guys losing their mind. You know, the, they get a couple of old coins, gold coins or something, and they go to a business meeting and throw them on the table and try and raise money. The guy just picks them up and feels them and looks at them and he's hooked yep. and next thing you know he's spending money to become a pirate yep. um, 
and I found in the middle of it all, and you find a couple of gold bars, and everyone thinks it's theirs. You do all the research, all the work, and the, or take all the risks. Then you bring it up, and everyone says, that's ours. I said, what do you mean it's yours? You didn't do all the work to go and get it. You didn't spend $300,000, $400,000 to find it. So I did a job, a salvage job, where I recovered a whole bunch of earth-moving equipment, big, big coal trucks, uh, D8 cats, big excavators that had rolled off a barge not too far from where we were based in Indonesia. And we went in plain sight, and there was probably several million dollars worth of equipment. And we picked it up and took it to the wharf, unloaded it, put it on the low boys and low loaders and drove away with it. And no one cared. If it had been one gold bar, it would have been the front page of the paper. And so that was when I sort of lost interest in treasure hunting. wave-chasing surfer and explorer, best known as the captain of the Indies Trader Fleet, described by Surfing Magazine as burly, outspoken, and as impenetrable as the steel hull of his ship, end quote. It is often said that Daly has discovered more high-quality surf breaks than anybody in the world. In 1991, Tom Carroll leaked photos of a trip he took with Daly, and shortly thereafter, the Mentawai Islands became the premier destination for surf magazine photo trips, surf brand product shoots. With it, a soon-to-be-booming Sumatra-based surf charter industry was born with Daily at the fore. In 1999, putting into motion an idea that Daily and former pro surfer Bruce Raymond came up with a few years earlier, Quicksilver hired Daily to captain the Indies Trader for a promo campaign called The Crossing, a worldwide exploration of surf that lasted for six years, with the Indie Trader visiting 27 countries and covering 160,000 nautical miles. By that time, Daily's own charter business had 60 employees. Since the mid-90s, Daly has been taken to task for exposing, crowding, and even exploiting the surf breaks he has discovered. We dive into all of those things in today's episode with the man who Surfer Magazine listed as number 18 on their 25 Most Powerful People in Surfing feature in 2002. My name is David Scales for Surf Splendor. I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Martin Daly. We recorded it in the library of the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center, surrounded by a comprehensive archive of surf magazines all the way back through the 60s, many of which feature Martin and many that he hadn't ever seen. Um, but I just never managed to keep anything. Oh, I see. There was uh, so much material that was generated on the Quicksilver when I was associated with them. Um, I was just too busy doing it. Gotcha. And I kind of regret it because I haven't got any photographs. I haven't really got any of the magazines. I've got a couple of t-shirts, which my son wears all the time, but yeah. they're too small for me now. <laughs> sure. And uh, yeah. I mean, the idea though, that so much of your life's experience is documented professionally by photography yes, is kind it, of remarkable. Well, it's, that's, you know, it really is just the last bit, you know, after sort of the payday. Oh, okay. If you know what I mean. Like yeah. when I sort of got it, associated with the surfing industry but that's but, only you refer to that as the last bit yeah <laughs> <laughs> hasn't it been 20 or 30 years at this point um early 90s I you guess? know time as you get older time moves quickly yeah and you know when you're younger it's the it's the special stuff when you're younger that seem to take the longest time 
and then the, then things to get a roll on. Right. So it seems like yesterday that I was associated with Quicksilver and doing the crossing and all that stuff. But the stuff that was before that seemed to be a lot, lot, lot more of it. I see. It, it was kind of a blur, you know? Let's talk about yeah. that stuff because I feel like um, people in the surf world are familiar with your name. Your name mm-hmm. pops up in surf media every once in a while. Yeah. But I don't know that everybody's really familiar with your origin story. Um, let's start with what came first, surfing or sailing for you? Um, surfing. Did it? Um, I was born in uh, Sydney. And Sydney's got a big, a very similar beach culture, or even more of a beach culture than than uh, than here, than in Los Angeles. Um, you know, when I was a toddler, I was down the beach, sort of swimming with, with the, between the flags, and the beach was, you know, everybody was on the beach all summer, and you know, riding around on small foam boards and then big bolts of long boards, and mm-hmm. you know, but the beach was front and center with everybody at that, at that time when I was a kid. When did sailing come into the picture? Um, my dad always had a boat of some sort. Okay. He used to race um, sailing boats, you know, like 18 footer uh, fast skiffs. And, and then we had always had a power boat or a speed boat of some sort. And a couple of hideous trailer sailors, things that go really, really slow and don't really do anything properly. From the age of 10, Martin began working as a deckhand on a charter boat, taking people fishing and diving around the barrier reefs in northern Queensland. You know, that was pretty formative because we were going to places that weren't even chartered back in the early 70s. Um, The charts just said, you know, reef report of Flinders 1850 or 1770 or something. Wow. So things have changed a lot. Yeah. And just looking back, we had no GPS, no no idea where we were going so we'd just leave port in Townsville North Queensland and get a compass heading and then we'd drive for five or six or eight hours and then we'd get to the top of the mast make sure it was daytime and look out and see if we could see a reef anywhere because there's no islands out there just the barrier reef and then we'd see a reef drive up to it and we'd hope it was one we were looking for. From the earliest days, Martin wanted to own a charter boat, but his path to that goal was not short, and it required that he persevered dozens of menial jobs to get there. The guy that I used to go out, a guy called Cocky Watson, with his boat, the Seacock, <laughs> had a big rooster on the side of it. Gotcha. <laughs> um, he, uh, he promised me a job uh, when, I left school, when I was 15. So I left school to go and work for him, okay. thinking I was going to get my captain's ticket and be the crew on his boat. And he built this building, this charter boat down in uh, Newcastle. And then there was some sort of economic crisis in the early 70s. And he lost the boat. And I suddenly found myself at 16 without a job or a career or a future. Just oh no education. I'd, I'd skipped school. Didn't think I needed it. And right. uh, so, yeah, so um, sort of bummed around surfing doing nothing much trying to figure out what i was going to do and did a million million crappy jobs i think 52 i counted before i figured no out way. yeah every every you know from cleaning toilets to meat works to laboring digging ditches you know waiting tables barman planting pine trees cutting pine trees thinning pine trees 
working on a sheep uh, sheep farm or what you call a sheep ranch here. I don't know. Sure. And uh, yeah, so it wasn't until I actually took up professional diving that I actually figured out what I wanted to do. What were you doing as a professional diver? Um, I worked in the oil field in Southeast Asia, um, uh, doing underwater maintenance, uh, inspection, construction, you know, and on the oil rigs, and uh, ended up doing a little bit of saturation diving, and then. Probably, I, I only actually worked for other people for three years, and I started my own company, and took one of the major contracts off my off off the big company called Oceaneering that I was working with. Oh, okay. I wasn't very popular. No. <laughs> um, and I ran a commercial diving company for about ten or twelve years, um, and the idea was to use that to pay for the boat, so I go look for surf. Where were you looking at the time? Well, the first trip we did on the Indies Trader, which which is the Raider then. Um, was a friend of mine, Jeff Chitty, and a guy called Dave Wiley. They're both dead, unfortunately, now. Um, and uh, the guy, Robert Wilson, who started uh, Rip Curl in, in Indonesia and in Asia. We headed out uh, on Dave Barnett's boat, which was called the Raider, which is now the Indian Trader. He he rented it to us for 500 a day. Um, and we went looking for surf, and we found one palm, and all the waves of Penitent, and up the coast of Sumatra, um, to the bottom of the Mendawais and, and that area. And uh, that was the first real surf trip that we ever did. What year was that? Nine, it was about April, May 1983. I think. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. It was great. Um, when was your first <coughs> surf charter? Surf charter would have been probably, well, I bought the boat in October 86. Okay. And I took... Uh, in later on that year, or maybe the next year, I took Nat Young and a couple of his friends from Sydney and Dave Wiley went out to uh, an island called Ingano, which is the south of the Medawais. Um And that, that was actually the first time I actually got paid to take anyone. They chartered the boat. And then I gave it a rest for a while, went diving and got tied up in all sorts of nefarious activities. Um, and really, I think the first charter was probably at 91 when I took uh, Potts and, and uh, Tom Carroll and uh, and uh, Ross Clark Jones and Stuart Cadden out on a, a, a trip to the, to the Mentors. Um, how did that initial trip happen with Nat Young? Did you know them through the surf world? Did no, they look, I, look Dave Wiley had come from Avoca, which is north of Sydney, and somehow he knew somebody who knew him. Okay. And Dave was a, uh, he used to live in Sumba. He's sort of the, the, the Sumba guy. And he was living in Jakarta at the time, and he somehow conned me into the, taking these guys out. Um, I was kind of starstruck with Nat. Yeah, I would imagine. At that, age, at that stage, I mean, I was just a, just a recreational surfer, never been a fantastic surfer, but really loved it. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was pretty excited to, to meet someone of that calibre. And he was very large, a large-than-life guy, you know. Um, he wanted us, funnily, funnily enough, we went to Ingano, and this is in 1986 or 7, and he goes, let's build a surf camp on the beach here, right? And to this day, there's still a thing here. And he wanted me to do all this stuff, and he was all fired up on it. And uh, in the end, I just flagged him. I just went, that. Nah. Why not? I wasn't really into that. I thought it was kind of exploitive at the time. Um, 
and I was really keen to do a whole lot more exploration. Yeah. Nat was a very type A guy, and I just didn't think it was going to work. Just the name Indonesia is synonymous with images of empty peeling reef breaks unloading in front of palm-lined beaches. But in the early 80s, very few people had any awareness of just how wave-rich the region was. And even if they did, no one had the resources to explore it. Um, They didn't have a clue. Um, There was nobody there. And there was nobody looking and nobody had a boat. Right. Right? I went to Nias in 1980. Uh, or 81, I can't remember, I think it was 1980. And the movie, movie Storm Riders had just come out and it was just on the map, a photograph that Eric Ada had done of Lagundry Bay with the coconuts in the background and the wave peeling, making it look like it was like this long point break, which it's not. And that photograph had captured everyone's imagination. And so I got there and this hideous road trip to get there. Boats and motorbikes and vomiting people all over you know but indonesian bus rides the whole the whole deal and uh, i got there and there was 30 guys out i couldn't believe it holy cow tourists surf to surfers and they were good hardcore surfers everyone just went there this is you know just at that time and i couldn't even get a wave to be honest i stayed there from six weeks got malaria nearly died oh my god um and I just live was sleeping on this coral floor with mosquito infested sort of so uh, what do they call those things here? We call them besser blocks, concre- uh, concrete block house. Okay. Uh, what do you call these? Cinder blocks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just hideously hot mosquito, crap food, and crowded. And I'm going to myself at the time. What am I doing here? I could see coast that way and coast that way and I spoke to people and said well you know it must be surf everywhere they went there mate no no just here this is this is is all there is there's a place called there's a place out there there's some islands called the Hanakos where a couple of guys have been but ah this is the place mate you don't need to go any further but I was sitting there and going I not I got to get a boat I can't deal with this yeah and uh, there's got to be between here and and Sumatra I mean so here in Java and and G-Land there's got to be waves everywhere. And so I got back from that, went diving again, and uh, I had a couple of diving buddies, a friend called Jeff Jitty and another guy called Ross Hannon. And then we said, I just tried to talk him into buying a boat together. And we looked at a couple of old concrete yachts and stuff. And and uh, instead we went to Bali and rented a, built a place down there or rented a place down there and hung out in Bali. There was no one there, so that was still pretty good. Mm-hmm. That quickly deteriorated to... You know, we had secret, semi-secret breaks in Bali. There was a place we used to call, you know, the, we used to whisper about a place called Changu. And we used to whisper about a place called Bingen. <laughs> you know, these places were sort of on the on the Bukit side and you'd never see anybody. And then they got crowded and then we left. Despite Martin's desire to surf and his early dreams of owning a charter boat, he didn't immediately recognize the business opportunity for a surf charter or he had consternation about the potential ramifications of a successful surf charter business. I 
didn't, it kind of didn't really, I didn't pursue it. It was one of those things where someone, you just do something and the whole world beat, beats a path to your door. I used to really, um, I was really off the whole idea. You know, we, we were, we were, uh, we were doing it ourselves and we we're exploring and, and we had this place that we found which we called One Palm Point, which is this amazing left-hander. I think it's still, to this day, one of the best lefts in the world. Really? And only we knew about it. And one of my mate, mates had told a photographer about it, um, a guy called Crawford, kneeboarder, and he was an Australian surf photographer. Pretty famous, um, pretty famous guy. And next thing you know, there was there was the charter boat turned up. Um, this guy called the Surf Travel Company, and we were just blown out. We were so pissed off. It was our own private. We we just had it to ourselves, and we just felt like it was ours. Mm-hmm. And other people turning up was not something we even ever, ever anticipated. The, the kind of there was a, a period there where. You know, we go down there on Indies Trader, or the Raider, which was called then, and uh, just with a couple of friends and go surfing and hang out, and we didn't really understand the surfing world. Didn't was we weren't, we weren't really interacting with anybody, and just doing our own thing. I used to wear uh, coveralls to surf in. No way. Yeah, uh, to keep the sun off you, and also when you rolled around the reefs, you can get cut up. Oh my gosh, that's fascinating. And the first time I took. This trip I did with a, sort of going backwards and forwards a bit, but I got a Tom Carroll used to give me the hardest time about like why you're wearing coveralls. And he made out this story that I used to surf in coveralls and work boots, but yeah, he didn't <laughs> have the work boots. Didn't have the work boots on. And I went back to Penaiton just recently uh, with with GoPro, and uh, all the guys are completely covered up, head to toe in rubber helmets, padding on their backs, actual wetsuits. Yeah. Really? Protection from the reef. And all that, you know, it's, uh, it's a pretty shallow wave. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, I wonder if they're wearing two mil wetsuits. Yeah, Can really thin wetsuits, but, but they've got elbow pads and butt pads. Wow. I mean, you, if you fall off there, you hit the reef. Wow. It's pretty heavy. Right. You don't just scrape it, you get driven, driven into it sometimes. So. Right. Concerned about overexploiting his discoveries, Martin developed a plan to make a living doing dive charters and then reserve the surfing for private exploration. That was until a tragedy redirected his course. I think it was about 1991 or 90. Yeah, sometime around there, I, I bought, I'd already found the Mendeweiss. I'd already been up there and, and understood what was going on. Um, so I built this charter boat in Australia called the, called the Volcanic. And uh, that was the first charter boat that was probably in the whole West of Sumatra ever. Um, I'd been up there on the Trader One, but the Volcanic, I wanted to do dive charters. The concept was that I'd do scuba diving charters and then, then sneak out and go for a surf. Okay. Um, and not to actually do surf charters. And... Just getting that going, and then there was a fire. It was a long story, but a couple of people died. The boat, the, the boat was gone. There was a fire on another boat next to mine, and three boats went up. And a couple of, and, and that was sort of a, a, a fork in the road, you know. I was always worried about my friends that were working for me diving that they were going to get, you know, when the phone calls in the middle of the night were always scary. Yeah. 
because um, yeah, all my friends are working for me and, uh, and diving is quite hazardous. And then when we had this, we had this uh, fire and people died, I kind of gave me a bit of a wake-up call and I kind of said, I'm going to get out of this diving business. And I thought about, do I end up in an office with a suit and tie on or do I end up going surfing for a living? Hmm. And because I'd been up there on this volcanic with this is when I took uh, the, I, one surf trip on that boat was with Potts and Ross and Tom it wasn't on the Indies Trader okay it was on this beautiful charter boat I built called the Volcanic and it and uh, after that I mean it was just like an avalanche of people trying to get to the mentorize on with me was that trip documented and published in surf no. media okay no, but no, they just no, got back there was and no professional the we made, there was no professional photographers on board it was just a, a, a boys trip i got conned into it i had no idea that they were coming and if i'd have known that they were coming i wouldn't have taken them why not well we were trying to keep it to ourselves we we're being selfish i guess hmm. um i i'd heard of tom carroll but i never heard of ross and i never heard of Potts. Um, we didn't really get surf magazines or anything in hmm. those days so what happens i had a friend in bali in the oil field they knew and whenever those guys came to Bali he had a big house in in, in, in um, Legion and they would stay with him so I guess they were you know having a few beers and talking about it and I told my friend that I was going up there surfing the surf was awesome and he said oh how about I charter your boat and I said um, and it was the right time of year like it was coming on it was like March ready at the beginning of the season and I really wanted to get back up there and he says, oh, i got a few friends from Bali. Um, I said, well, they kept their mouth shut? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, they kept their mouth shut. They're local guys, you know. I mean, you know, and I said, all right, Paul, well, um, that's cool. Uh, we'll just split the cost, you know. Uh, I, I don't know, can, can we come up with like 1400 bucks or something for fuel and everything else? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I kept on saying, Paul, can I have the crew list? I need it for the Harbour Master. And he goes, um, yeah, I'll get it to you. Uh, Paul, I need some money, you know, to buy the fuel and everything. So he sent money. And then where's the crew list? And it's like two days or three days before the trip. And it was Martin Potter, Ross Clark, Jones, Tom Carroll, all these pro surfer guys. And I was incensed. And so I sort of snapped at him. I said, what are you doing, mate? You know that these guys will, will just blow it out. And he goes, oh, they're really good guys. They won't say a word. I said, yeah, right. So I said, well, we can find someone else to take us, Martin, if you like. And I said, well, I was torn. A, I was like, Tom Carroll was my idol. And but and B, I wanted to get up there. It was the right time of the year. I was frothing to get to go surfing. And I was going to pay the bills. And so I just sort of went, at least I'll have two weeks to talk him into not telling anyone. Right. Right? And uh, we had an amazing trip, the best... Some of the best surf I've ever seen in the Mendo wow. to this day. Wow. Uh, we went to, um, we surfed a left-hander we call laxatives. Um, still to this day, some of the biggest paddling waves ever in Indonesia, including like some of these photographs you see of outside corner. I've got the photographs, I mean, it's, it's huge. Hmm. And we pulled up to this place and Ross and Tom and Potts and all the guys jumped out. And one set came through and everyone else came back in. <laughs> It looked like it was about six foot, maybe eight foot. And the first set came through, and Tom was calling it 18 feet Hawaiian. Holy cow. 
and they just played with it. And I had never seen pro surfers before. I mean, I've seen Nat, and he's a good surfer, but these guys were at their prime. Tom had just had done the, the snap that had gone around the world or whatever, and um, they were kind of maniacs. So they were out there in these waves, and it was like they were doing crossovers. Like they are both they were paddling in together, and, and yeah. Unreal. That was Tom and Ross. They're kind of nuts, those guys. Ross got a I got a Ross got caught inside, and lost his oh wearing helmets lost his helmets lost his board shorts, uh, two wave hold down. Um, said it, he said at the time it was the worst wipeout he'd ever had. Wow! And just went to pick him up in the tin boat and he just went take us back out. Wow! <laughs> he's a maniac. He is. He is. He, I think he likes it. Yeah. I think he seeks that. Yeah. And yeah. So then I realised the difference between. The regular Joe that surfs and the and these guys. I yeah. mean, they, they were on short boards, paddling into these monstrous, perfect waves, and uh, and then we went out to the Mendoise and we surfed uh, further up and we surfed at telescopes and it was still the best I've ever seen. It. Um, Ross and Stuart Cadden were both, I think, goofy footers. No, sorry, Tom and, and Stuart Cadden. They'll take off on a peak, way up the line at telescopes. I've never seen anyone surf since. That Interesting. Was just, yeah. It was, it was like 18 wave sets. Crazy. It was amazing that day. Yeah. And we just pulled up at dawn. I'd, I'd surfed the wave before crappy, and I was just sort of coming up. We pulled up, and it was eight feet, and just the sunlight coming up, mist, and these waves. And I remember the guys coming up, bumping their heads, walking out the door, just going, what? Yeah. I said, how long has this been going on? <laughs> Wild. Uh, yeah. Um, and they obviously did not keep the secret. Well, you know, I, they, I, they didn't know where they were going. The charts were all hidden and everything else. And, and you know, I, but uh, Tom took some video. And Tom's a bit of a you know, keen photographer. And he actually typed in the bottom of it where it was. Oh, okay. Text. And then, of course, he's on a pro tour. So the next place he goes to is a pro tour with all the photographers and the whole surfing world's there, you know. And then the, and the, that's the hardest people to deal with is the pro photographers. They're the guys that, blo- that usually talk the most about what surf spots. Right. And with, with a few exceptions. Um, and of course, you know, Tom's showing his videos to everybody a week later in, in, you know, in California or something. And they got back to me pretty quickly. And so there's so much for that. Yeah. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 
2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's LinkedInjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Or they said, um, if you don't take us, we'll find somebody else to do it. Was there anybody else to do no. it? So, yeah. yeah. So, when that influx of tourism happens, it all has to funnel through you, basically. Initially, yeah. Okay. I mean, we were it. And um, it's a long story. I mean, it's, it's such an interesting story of betrayal would be the word who betrayed you, who everybody betrayed everybody from the beginning to the beginning to, to, to today you know really yeah. just because it's a finite resource and everybody wants to get there yeah well sure. it's just i mean it's a resource i guess like a gold rush i guess i mean you know we had we, we were sort of the hold of the we had the keys for a long time and then other people anyone it seemed like anyone i met or anyone that came close to it ended up competing with us yeah i mean that's such a um bold claim it's a story of betrayal yeah so who do you feel betrayed by everybody that's ever worked for me really just about yeah just so like if you, you if you would do a roll call in the mentorwise of the charter boats you would find a connection to me in some way on probably most of the older boats at least you know ex-skippers ex-cooks ex-employees yeah you did the same thing in your diving company, didn't you? Yeah, I did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it comes full yeah, but, circle. Yeah, but that was that was a publicly listed corporate company. Um, yeah. Is there a is there a graceful way to do it? I mean, cause I, I, well, I understand it. I mean, I'm not bitter and twisted about it. Yeah. Um, it's kind of, I had to accept it, otherwise it'd be a bitter and twisted old idiot. And uh, so, like, I've just come back from there. I was there last week, and. Uh, it was fantastic. It's just the same as it ever was. Yeah. Um, but I was in an anchorage looking at all my ex-employees' boats. There was about five of them floating, all, all painted the same color. Really? <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, despite that, you still built a significant business. I think I was reading somewhere you had 60 employees at one time running how many different boats? Well, at the peak of it, I guess it was the late 90s, early 2000. About then I had the Indies Trader which was on a crossing, but when it got back, the Indus Trader 2, the Indus Trader 3, the Indus Trader 4, and the Adventure Komodo. So it was quite a fleet. And they had an island and workshop facilities, and it was very it was turning into quite a quite an industrial yeah. deal. And uh, I don't know why, I just decided that it was just too much. And um, I, think just, I just, got, just kind of got carried away. And so I started winding things back um, about 2010. 
I'm curious about, I'm always interested in like the businesses behind mm-hmm. surfing. Um, number one, you're doing it in Indonesia, which has to just be fraught with all sorts of peril. Uh, well, I was really from, lucky. A, from a red tape kind of standpoint. No, but I was really lucky because I, I had a mentor, a guy called Dave Barnett, who I used to, who I used to work on the, on the Indies trader. He was the guy that built it. Okay. Just saw him the other day, came around the house. He's still around, lives down the road, down the road from me in, in Perth. And he's an incredibly intelligent man. And he was living in Indonesia for, for 12 years, I think, when I met him. And he was really uh, uh, savvy and really understood Indonesia, how it worked, an incredibly smart guy. So I was lucky. I, he passed me on, on all his intellectual property when I bought the boat off him. Staff, attitude, how to do things, how to pay, how to pay people off but not get involved in corruption. In other words, how to get through life on the, the, the what we call Wang Rokok, which is cigarette money, okay. as opposed to paying bribes to circumvent the course of business. One's a tip to get service, and the other one's... That's, in Indonesia, that's the kind of the ethic. Hmm. We understand that everyone must pay for everything. It's a fine line, though. But it is a fine line, to, and a lot of expatriates that come to Indonesia cross that line... In, in a kind of confusing way. Yeah. And a lot of it going on in the mental ways right now. People trying to figure out how to build resorts and getting fleeced by everybody. And uh, Well, and you were pioneering what you were doing. So we, I would imagine we were, we were, it's easy to cross that line the wrong well, way. we were... Nobody else was doing it and no one knew, knew why we were doing it and they, and they couldn't figure it out. Why are these guys so keen about playing in the surf? Yeah. I mean, for Indonesians, we were, we, it wasn't a serious enterprise. We were just playing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it seems frivolous. Totally. Um, so were you employing then local people when you were at that level? Yeah, well, okay. always. always. So, so I've still got the crew that I inherited. Do you? Um, I've got uh, two guys, Kasman and Samanto, who, who were on the boat when I bought it off Dave in 1986. And they're both the same age as me. They're in their 60s. Wow. So they've been working for me for since 86 and they've been on the boat before that so it's a long time yeah mm. um and they were kids were they yeah um i'm curious if you feel i mean you talk about feeling a little bit of consternation about exploiting mm-hmm. those spots and it certainly grew outside of your control at a certain Very point quickly. As those I, don't, I have no responsibility for anything that happened there after about 1995 or six in hindsight, is there any way you could have navigated it differently? No. It's so good. The whole world was going to turn up regardless of what I did. Um, but I think that my legacy, if there is anything there, is the mentor-wise is still busy, still fantastic, but it's still a nice place to go surfing. Can you still find empty empty surf? All the time. I think we surfed with other people twice in the last trip, you know. We're not surfing at, at Lance's Rights or Mac- Macaroni's or Telescopes or anywhere in the playground area because there's people everywhere. But if you're prepared to surf B-grade or B-plus waves, you'll be get them by yourself pretty, yeah. So there aren't better waves? There's still there's still a couple of... Yeah, I don't want to talk too much about it, really. Um, there's still a couple of little gems left, but yeah, they're, they're no longer a secret, but at least they're not, not too busy. Yeah. Yeah. At the time when you have that many, um, at the peak of all your employees and boats, were you living at sea full time essentially? Um, 
pretty well. Yeah, I mean, we had a place in Padang and and they had the island just off Padang. We, we rented an island there and uh, and we had a base and a wharf and workshop and it was pretty pretty cool. Um, so yeah, I spent a lot of time on the water, more time than I do now. How old were you at that time? Forties. Um, what did family life look like for you? Well, my wife is sitting right here. You can ask her if you like. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you guys been married? Uh, 21 years. Was she spending time with you on the boat? I said, it's hilarious. When I first met her, she was like, oh, yeah, I'll cook. Yeah, I'll, I'll be on the boat. All right. And then we got married, and she, probably that was the last time she actually was on the boat. <laughs> Did you have kids? Yeah, I got two kids. Yeah. I mean, because without knowing any of this information prior to asking you, I would think that you would have to choose one or the other. Um, yeah, it's funny. Huh? Um, it's worked out pretty well. Um, How did it work logistically? Well, basically, I go home whenever I can, and the kids and the family come to the boat, hang out with me whenever they can. Um, not, they- not ideal, but then, you know, they used to live in Jakarta. Okay. And in, 19, and it was in 2003, we moved to Perth, or moved the family down there. And, you know, they got a nice Australian upbringing, and I come home, and I'm hanging out with everybody. I'm not really working that much. Okay. And uh, Lee developed her own life, and I developed my own life, and then we sort of sort of cross paths all the time. But uh, now that now that we've um, the kids are just about ready to leave home, um, it's interesting. What career path do they want to pursue? Um, my daughter's uh, very academic. She wants to be a geneticist, so she's in the middle. Of she's a postgraduate, um, what they call honors in Australia before she goes to the PhD level or whatever. She's going to she graduated for first degree this year, um, and my son is um, doesn't know what he wants to do. Okay, yes, I think he's more interested in chasing girls right now than anything else. Fair enough, <laughs> but they don't want to get into the charter business. Uh, I think my son would like to, uh, but he's uh, preoccupied at the moment. He's just 18. Come yeah, on. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, do you have any regrets about time spent away from them? Would you have done that differently? Uh, look, I've got a friend called John McGroder, um, my ex- ex-skipper. He, he, he married the girl who used to work with me at Quicksilver. Um, and he brought his kids up on the boat. You know, like, like, you know, sort of the whole... They've stayed on the boat. The kids have grown up on the boat. And uh, so he did the... He kind of did the alternative... And I don't know if you, if you ask Belinda, his wife, whether or Lee, which had the best existence. I think Lee kind of kind of end up with a better deal. Really? Yeah. Um, She's a, an amazing woman, uh, Belinda. Yeah. McGrodder, uh, but uh, well, that's the thing. I mean, yeah. the, the lifestyle is not for everybody. I mean, it sounds. Well, the, can you imagine bringing a bunch of kids with eight, eight or ten drinking, drunken surfers on board the boat all the time that are always coming and going and transient. And, and, yeah, and always expecting to party and you know, right. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and fair enough, they want to go on a, boat, a boys' boat trip. That's what they expect, and they should get it. You know. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But and that's just part of it, though. But living at sea is an entirely different thing. That's not everybody's cut out for. Cramped conditions on a boat, hiding in the back cabin. Yeah. From everybody, it's. Not for everybody at all. Nah. Yeah. I, I really think she's done... It's amazing what they've achieved. Good. Um, I'm curious what the best surfing you've ever witnessed is. Kelly Slater. Really? Always. No question. It didn't take me long to think of it. No, it didn't. Yeah. When and where? 
Well, Kelly's been coming on the boat. I probably spent probably over a year in his company, in total. Um, I think the first first time was was ninety three. He was twenty one, and I see him every year, pretty well. Someone also he comes on the boat. Now he's coming to the place in the Pacific, and actually, he was out there with John John Florence last year, I think. And it was the first time I've ever seen anyone out surf Kelly. Wow. In a, a free surfing. Yeah. So I sort of went, wow, this guy actually is like, he's winning the heat with Kelly. And uh, that was the first time I'd ever seen it. Was that documented? Yeah. I think, I it, mean, was, I've uh, seen I think it was called um, Proximity. Taylor's Proximity. Yeah. yeah, I've seen that footage. Yeah. 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 Um, so Kelly's not the best surfing you've ever witnessed then? Well, that was only one session. I don't, I'd, I'd hate, but, but I'd, but I mean, I guess you know, there's a bit of an age difference. And Kelly's not at his prime anymore. Well, I think he is. I just Do think you? that he's that, that. I mean, he's. I just was Mark River watching him surf uh, last week and um, studying. It's funny how you were talking about um, that initial trip with Ross Clark Jones and Potts and Tom Carroll mm-hmm. and how much better they were than everybody else that you had witnessed surf before. Yeah. I've had that experience, certainly in Southern California, every pro surfer comes through mm-hmm. in the course of a year and they're mind blowingly better than what you've witnessed. But then Kelly Slater shows up every once in a while or John John mm-hmm. and they are that much better than those other pros that you've seen. Yes, And like the degrees of difference are unbelievable. Like you yeah. didn't know that they could be that yeah. attuned to the ocean. There's, you know? there's, yeah, there's, there's a few guys that I've seen that have that sort of extra. Yeah. Um, the, the, the ways the set waves always seem to come to them. Right. They exactly. Got that magic, you know. Um, Josh Kerr is one of those guys. Really. They really, really impressed me years ago. We go out surfing and you just get every set wave and and. Just get barreled, and no one is even getting anywhere near a barrel. And all of a sudden, Josh is getting barreled. You know, yeah. Um, Tom Caron, of course. Totally. Yeah. Tom's probably the best yeah. example. Yeah. Um, that sort of extra cosmic, cosmic crap going on, or whatever. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. It really, it's like an attunement with the ocean. Yeah. And um, I'm curious why you left the Mentalize. I haven't left. Oh, you haven't? Yeah, I'm still there. Uh, just running charters now, or oh yeah, no, I just got, I just got back a week ago. Okay, yeah, I've still got I've still got the Indies Trader Three out there, which is my the best. Cha- bit. So basically, I got rid of all the other charter boats and kept the best one. Gotcha. And, and uh, I just figured, why? But I can only go surfing on one boat. Why have I got five? Right. And uh, so that's kind of we just sneak around and do our thing and try and pretend there's no one else there. Um, tell me about your investment in Barren Island Resort. And the project there. Um, so I, I I knew what was happening in the Medawise. Meaning, what was going to happen? Um, it was the writing was on the wall in the nineties. I saw it and I went. So now what am I going to do? You know, because I've been so lucky throughout my life. I've never surfed in crowded surf, and I don't know how to surf in this crowds. I don't know how to. Hustle for ways. I just go out there and expect to get every set wave. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, with the crossing, the Quicksilver crossing came along, um, and I pitched that in '94 
when in, when no one even knew about the midwives to to go and have a look look for more places. And pitched pitched what exactly? I pitched the idea to Rip Curl and Quicksilver consecutively at in um, at Quicksilver's uh, house uh, Sunset Beach in Hawaii. Pitch the idea of the crossing, or pitch the idea of the resort. No, the the crossing. Gotcha. And and so Quicksilver man paid me to drive around the world, and I told them I'm going to do it at that meeting. They they, they laughed me out of the room. Um, and to do a global survey where the next place was, and so I spent seven years on um, sponsored by Quicksilver, going to every single tropical nation on, the, on earth, and in the end. Um, we didn't go there to the Marshall Islands. They wouldn't go there because it was too far out of the way or whatever. Um, and when I finally got there, um, this was it was like the 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 next thing. I'd, it was the next best thing to Indo. Um, you had been waiting to go there for that long for seven years. Uh, when I first got the charts out with, with Bruce Raymond for the, the Quicksilver in Sydney, we bought all these charts over the whole whole world like I spent about $8,000 on charts because there's no Google Earth there was no nothing wow. like that it was wow. just paper charts and I remember going to, to this place where we were at in the Marshalls and putting a cross on the map which is in a surf break which we now call Nirvana right and I went to Bruce we've got to go there look at the way the reef turns look at the wind direction look at it all that's got to be the spot and that's hilarious because we wouldn't, he wouldn't go there. We couldn't go there because of, you know, corporate promotional deals we had to do and everything else. And finally, that ended up being the best place that I'd ever. Amazing. Yeah. No Google Earth. It was just looking at the chart. Right. Yeah. yeah. So you identified that as a in, potential prop for the Quicksilver not, Crossing and then never made it. Never made it there. And then once the crossing wrapped up, you decided to go. Well, we were coming home um, from from here. We went, you know, the crossing ended here. Um, when when Quicksilver bought Rosignol and the mm-hmm. whole the whole beginning of the end, mm-hmm. sort of, of that process, um, and went to Hawaii to try and resurrect the crossing, and we went there for the eddy opening and all that sort of stuff and. It fell apart, so I sent the boat back to Indonesia. And if you draw a line from Hawaii to Indonesia, you've got to go drive through the Marshall Islands. Gotcha. And we got there on Christmas Day, or Christmas Eve, I think. And on Christmas Day, or was it was a New Year's Day, it was eight feet, eight to ten feet, and perfect. And went, oh, you know, okay. Um, and I flew. I, I didn't go on the on the boat. I flew home, met the boys in the over there. And then we spent. Then we spent six months driving around there looking for surf. Wow! Um, and uh, with with Rip Curl, far okay. enough. It was a little it was a, And um, yeah, it was you know it was, it was great. I was pretty stoked. With Validated. The whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then went backwards and forwards to Indonesia a few times. I brought the Indies trader back to the Marshall Islands. Okay. Bought the big boat, the Trader Four, up there for a couple of seasons. And did charters there and seeing what it was like. And then we had the economic crisis in, was it 2009? Yeah, eight, nine. Yeah, and I couldn't, I was, everybody got scared. I didn't want to spend the money on fuel to drive all the way up to the, you know, 
7,000 miles, whatever it is, from Padang to the Marshalls. And so I didn't go, and I was, thought it was over, my relationship with the Marshall Islands. And um, it's just looking at the things that were happening in, the, in Indo and that and everything else, they kept on bugging me that I wanted to get back there. And I, some other stuff happened with the bureaucracy. I had to get the Indies trader out of the country and whatever, you know. And uh, I, just, I just said, yeah, no, that's that's the future for uh, for me. And um, I took sailed in there with two boats, to the Indies trader and another boat called the Windward. And then we just said, that's where I want to go. I want to lease this island. That's it. That's 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 the that's my that's my uh, end play. Well, what what is the end play? What was the concept? It's a resort. It's a resort. It's just a it's just a like I built this beautiful big house that you'd see at Malibu or somewhere on a on a deserted island. There's no one around. Um, it's private. The waves are, the waves are really good. Not as consistent as the Medawise, but still really really good. And but the other thing I like about it is the isolation, because the world's shrinking so quickly. The fact that the, all the reefs are alive, or there's fish in the ocean, it's untouched. And so we're trying. Our, I'm trying my very best not to do as to do as little damage as possible. Okay. And uh, I've been playing around with solar energy and wind power, and and you know sort of all that, all those sort of green initiatives. And we're getting we're getting pretty close to being able to say we've got a, an actual eco resort. So it lives entirely off the grid, essentially. Yeah, well, I couldn't have built it if I didn't have a boat. The Indies Trader's okay. a cargo ship, so we used the Indies Trader to run back as a forwards all supplies and stuff. Gotcha. Um, yeah, we're completely independent. We have, we, we, you know, we grow our own food. We go fishing. We've got solar power. We've got wind power. We've got solar hot water systems, and but we've got we've got internet. We sit there watching Netflix. It's kind of bizarre. Wow. You're lying you're in a beautiful house in the middle of nowhere, watching. Netflix on an 80-inch screen, looking out there at the wind, the surf pillar down the point next to you. It's kind of surreal. You go, and then the air-conditioned rooms just around the corner. And, and the staff has living quarters on the island. Yeah, as well? yeah. Well, okay. it's a big, it's a really big building. So there's an office downstairs where a couple air-conditioned office where a couple of the guys stay. Okay. And then with the boats are at the wharf, and the guys stay on the boats, look after the boats. And then there's a bit of accommodation here and there. So yeah, it's a, wow. it's a, it's a. It's most people that go there just they see the photographs and everything else and they say yeah 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 whatever and they walk in there and you can see their faces they've just been on this arduous trip to get there and they're getting a bit grumpy some of the richer guys too you know like they're not quite as uh, five star as they'd like and then they walk in there and you know the frowns on their face and they walk in and they just go no way and they just Everything, everything lifts and, and yeah. yeah. What's the surf like? And are there options like walkable out front, or do you boat everywhere? Um, we have some waves out the front. We have some really nice waves. They they, they need like, they need like Kona winds. Okay. It's generally onshore the wave at the front, but when, when it's on, it's insane. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of other waves on the other side of the island that you know recre- recreational sort of waves where okay. people go out and stand up paddleboard or or go, and then. Generally, it's a boat trip, a, a, you know, a small a tin boat ride or a, or a, um, you know, two or three miles. Gotcha. To a couple of breaks that are pretty good. Do you follow any surf media? Um, well, John over here is my media guy, and he's he's put us on Instagram and trying to bring us up to date with all that sort of stuff. Why um, Why do you feel a need for a media guy? 
Uh, I guess it's just the, the time we're in. Um, you got to keep keep current. I mean, mm-hmm. we've got, you know, we've got to have the resort and the marshals. We've got to book it, and we've got to in, in, interact with people. And you set up a credit card and, and booking uh, booking platforms and and you know people ask a lot of questions. And a good website helps reduce mm-hmm. the number of questions you get asked. Um, my wife feels a lot of the inquiries. And if you, imagine you've got thirty people going on a holiday. Or twenty people going on a holiday. You imagine how many questions that you got to answer. Yep. And you've got to do it with good faith and good spirit. And so, the more information they get, they can access online, the better. Yeah. Yeah. Just reduces the workload. Yeah. Um. So, in terms of surf media, I mean, you've been so influential for so much of surf media for so long. What do you yourself read and look for and enjoy? Um. It's an interesting question. Surface Journal, pretty well, would be the only thing I'd probably sit down and read cover to cover. Um, you know, I mean, I, I quite enjoy some of the sort of irreverent, uh, you know, sort of the... What's Chad Smith's one? The, <laughs> Beach Grit. Beach Grit, yeah. Yeah, you like it? I quite enjoy that, yeah. He's currently sailing down to Cabo. Oh, he yeah? Left today, yeah. Okay. Um. <laughs> There's a few of those sort of uh, stab. Yeah. Um, they're kind of entertaining. Yeah. yeah. Very, very irreverent, which I kind of enjoy. Totally. Yeah. Surfing is irreverent. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, obviously, you have a bunch of logistical constraints with your various businesses, but I'm curious what, uh, where you would like to explore. Given no constraint, where would you go see? Well, I, I started exploring the Pacific Ocean in 1990. Five, I guess, um, and I wanted to do every square inch of the Indonesian coastline, um, and I have. Have you really? Yeah, I've, I've, I bought every sing, every square inch that faces a swell, north and south, and all that sort of stuff. And so, with the you know, I mean, I, I really probably the most. I'm a bit of an exploration junkie. For me to to, to go somewhere where I've never been before and see what's around the next bay. Um, it's probably my most fun I can have. Yeah. Um, but there's, a, I've pretty well crossed off, off just about everywhere in the Pacific now. There's a couple of little places. Google Earth kind of spoils it a bit. You know, you can sort of, and I think Google is responsible for less exploration than more. Interesting. Because you satiate the urge just by looking it up online? Well, everyone seems to think they can run their universes from their, yeah. from their phones. And there are a lot of couch surfing going on. Yeah. Um, and, you know, back in the day, we would, in the wilds of Indonesia, every now and then we'd see a, a, a term which we kind of invented on the, on the boat, a feral surfer. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, a, it was a, a term that was used in New Zealand to, to describe uh, people that lived, lived off, the, off, the, off the radar. Yeah. And uh, ferals, right? Yeah. And I had a Kiwi, a Kiwi captain and he goes, hey, there's a feral. On the beach. <laughs> and yeah. Rip Girl co-opted it for a film title. Feral Kingdom. Feral Kingdom, Sunny, yeah. yeah. But we used to get these guys, and there'd, be, there'd be guys camped in tents in the middle of nowhere, you know, before, before Timmy Turner right. um, showed everyone how to be a really bad camper. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, there were these guys that were out there, really hardcore purists that were, that were chopping their way through the jungle looking for surf. Yeah. And since the internet and since Google Earth, 
I haven't come across one since. That's fascinating. Yeah. You would think there'd be way more. You know, I spent so much time in unexplored areas over the years, and there's no one out there. Yeah. And it seems to be these days, if anyone does go out there, it's it's on the it's it's on it's on Instagram. That's the reason why they're going is just yeah. to get the Instagram shot. Yeah. Um, so where would you go? What, what? Uh, look, uh, there's I've done a lot and to places I go back to. There's there's one place that I call El Dorado. Um, that I don't, I'm not going to say where it is. There's only a few places left. That it has like five world class waves that you can see from one place. Like left, uh, sorry, left, right, 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 left, right, mm. all firing. And every one of them is like an A grade wave, but I've never seen anything like it. Makes the playgrounds in the Midwise look uh, restricted. Have you ever seen anybody else there? No one's ever been there. Amazing. And I went back there just recently and got kicked out. By whom? By the by the by the island by the people. Really? Yep. We we drove all this way to go there. The swell was coming, and we and we, we, we the first time I went there it was really cool, but kind of weird. And this time, the village the, the community was having some issues, some political issues amongst themselves, and then we went to this sort of you know tribal meeting hut to get asked permission and everything else, and they they Muttering around, they said, no, you must leave now. How does that work? Um, I mean, if you just anchored out to sea, would they come out and address it with you? Oh, they, they did. did. Okay. And they say, come come on to land. And Well, we, 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 we drove past, talked to them on the radio, and we'd been there before okay. and met everybody. Gotcha. And didn't think it was going to be an issue. And we were, you know, legally, we were fine. But the, when the locals don't want you there. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, and it was like, oh man, we just had a couple of waves with a forbidden fruit, and, it, and the swell was coming. You know, we've got internet in the boat now. We can we can we can, we can uh, understand when the when the uh, waves are coming. Yeah. And uh, and we're arguing and arguing. I was wondering if the and they said it's going to cost you five hundred dollars fee. I'm like, oh, okay, that's, now we, we can, can solve save. that. Yeah, right. So I got my money out and gave it to them. And and you still got to go. <laughs> <laughs> they were having an internal dispute on the island. Um, someone had been there and they'd found a whole bunch of ingots that were ballast, which is pig pig iron, and they all thought it was gold or platinum or something. And there was this big, huge fight going on in the island about this supposed treasure, and they figured that we'd come out with this. My boat called the Indy Survey had all the diving gear on it for our bikini diving program. And they and they didn't believe that we were just there to go surfing. They thought we had an, an, another ulterior motive. Yeah, that we were sort of treasure hunting or something. That makes sense. And so we got run off. Yeah. And then we were panicking because this is a trip. I didn't have any guests on board. It was just me on my own dime looking because I just want to go back there. I was just gutted. And then I said, "Okay, where are we going to go? We're a long, a long way from anywhere." I said, "How about this bit of coast over here? I think we can get there by if we leave now, by the morning." And uh, so the minute of this discussion, I just went, we're not going to win here. Let's go. And we sort of stopped talking, turned around, walked out of the room, walked to the boat, and then the next morning woke up, and it was absolutely pumping. 
somewhere that we'd never been before and it was firing. So everything's meant to happen. Okay, fair enough. When have you ever felt the most in danger? Towards the end of the crossing with Quicksilver, my contract was coming up in November. Um, In in June, they'd asked me to extend for another five years and I said I couldn't do it. I'd only do two more years. And then Bob McKnight said, you know, look, do you reckon you can get to the to Hawaii for the Eddie? And I went, man, it's November. It's just it's it's the North Pacific in the middle of winter. And to go from San Francisco to Hawaii, I never this that's the biggest stretch of ocean in the world. If you do, go around the world in a boat, there's this one big piece of ocean, which is the Pacific to Hawaii, or the Pacific to Marquesas. It's just this, there's no island hopping. It's just this one. Two and a half, twenty three hundred nautical mile chunk of ocean you got to cross. And uh, Bob said, "If I if you can get the boat to, to to Hawaii before the eddy, I think I can salvage salvage everything." And I went, mm, "Okay." I mean, the Indies trade to be on is is a just is a trawler hull that was designed to go up and down the coast of Queensland. It wasn't supposed to be a boat that goes drives around the world. So this was the, the biggest crossing that we'd ever at- attempted. And I waited till we had a really good forecast and we left through the gold, under the Golden Gate and off we went, you know, um, calm and, you know, it was cold and the water was grey and, you know, and then we headed out pretty uneventful for the first week. And there's a, there's a weather pattern that sits a bit further south where there's usually a high and the weather's usually pretty good. But I made a bad decision based on our original track. I did a straight line because I wanted to get there as fast as I could. And I went too far north. I should have gone south okay. and up to Hawaii. And so about day eight, we we got involved in a proper northern Pacific winter storm oh. on Indy Trader. And the boat was stronger than us. I mean, it was, it was, it was blowing about thirty-five knots southwest. Southwest, yeah. So that we were going this way. It was coming. There's this huge chop. Then there was like this twenty-foot short period swell, and it looked like we were caught inside mm. in big surf. It was just the hops were blowing off the waves, and then there were these huge wind chop coming up this swell, and they're creating these big holes in the ocean. And every now and then the boat would fall through the air into one of these holes with a swell pushing it forwards and this big chop coming up it and the bell would ring and the boat would just go get air. The, the uh, propeller would start spinning. Wow. And it'd go bang. The whole thing would sound like it'd go break in half. And that happened for two days. Oh my gosh. We were terrified. The boat was on autopilot and the boat just chugged through it. Unbelievable. You couldn't walk. You couldn't, you couldn't stand up on the boat. You had to crawl around on your hands and knees and grab stuff, and the boat just shook it off like a like a like a dog shaking water off it. Um, and then kind of got through that, um, and then the water started turning blue, and then it calmed down, and then we started started uh, it started uh, the water getting warmer, and uh, we eventually we sailed in to Hawaii. And uh, we, we were heading for Haleiwa Boat Harbour, and uh, this was huge swell. It was you know just before it was like November the twenty something, and and uh, the Haleiwa Boat Harbour was closed I mean, because it was so big. It was too big, right? 
And we were supposed to then, we were so disappointed. So we drove past the North Shore. Someone saw us go past the the uh, the big hotel there. What's it, the uh, Turtle, Turtle Bay? Bay. Uh, and they kind of woke up and, and sort of saw the Indies trader out there. Went, what? We didn't tell anybody we were coming, right? And uh, and we and I said, I stuffed it. I'm going in. So it was a great way to arrive. So a few of the boys had turned up at the dock. Um, and the harbour closes out at the back with a big swell. And so I just did like I normally do in a small boat. I waited, did donuts out the back and waited till there was a really big set and then followed it in. And we came surfing in with waves break, white water each side of us, the channel. Um, came surfing in and it was a great way to arrive in Hawaii and... And then everything fell apart and the thing was over. Right. Nothing, yeah. But kiss the ground, I'm sure, yeah. right when you get there. Oh, we were stoked. I mean, yeah. it was, it was, it was uh, the, 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 the real thing, you know? Yeah. yeah. It sounds like it. Yeah. It's insane. Um, I'm curious if you've ever traveled inland. You I'm do terrible. All of- I'm terrible at that. Like, you know, I uh, just go to the coast. I um, mean, you not barely the coast. You spend most yeah. of your time off the coast. I like, in the middle, I never go to the beach. I'm terrible. I just think, yeah. like, uh, certainly here, from where we're sitting now, there's such spectacular national parks within yeah. one day's driving distance. No interest in that. The Grand Canyon, Zion. My wife is looking at me. Yeah, I know. She looks thrilled. <laughs> she wants me to do something that's not related to surfing. Yosemite, you could get there yeah. in five hours. <laughs> no? No interest? Uh, yeah, I'm not particularly interested, but, I, but, but I'll be a good husband and maybe consider doing something like that. Good man. Yeah. You've gotten to see everything that you want to see. No. Well, yeah. you've gotten to see a lot of what you Oh, I've been see. very lucky. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, the final question for everybody interviewed is just, what was the last surfboard that you rode? It was a eight-foot t- uh, Tough Light uh, M13. I've been riding that board for six or seven years. Really? Longer. I had a 7.6. Now I'm getting older. I've just added six inches, and now I'm riding the... That's all I ever rode pretty well. I saw a photo. It might have been on Matt Warshaw's Encyclopedia of Surfing. And I think it was a tough light that you were riding too, but yeah. Channel Islands. Yeah, Channel Islands, M13. Is that your go-to I've just had three of them. Yeah, I, I just just I just don't see any reason. They get on another board, doesn't go as well. I go, I go back to that. I mean, if that M13 has lasted you Well, I've, I've, I've had about 20 of them. Oh, okay. I keep on snapping them. and Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. And I don't make them anymore. So if anyone's got one, I'd love to buy it off them. There you go. You might get an email. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, no worries. IndiesTrader.com is Martin's website. You can also access info for his Marshall Islands resort there as well. 
And if all of those early days of exploration sounded thrilling to you, they're actually introducing an exploratory trip option very soon as well. So you can actually be a part of uh, pioneering perhaps the next great surf discovery. Of course, you will be sworn to secrecy. I've got photos of Martin and some surf footage of those old, early uh, Quicksilver crossing days and some other important surf trips that Martin participated in and captained all on surfsplendorpodcast.com along with the comment section. Every past episode of Surf Splendor and the five other shows that we produce all available for free. There's a donation PayPal button if you'd care to support this work. Thank you to those who um, keep us in business with a monthly recurring option. That is hugely appreciated. I'll be back next week with another installation of our Temples of Stoke series featuring iconic California surf shops. That's presented by the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center. Their Temples of Stoke exhibit opens on Friday, August 9th. You can get tickets and learn more at shack.org. That's S-H-A-C-C dot org. In closing, Martin Daly said that Kelly Slater has done the best surfing that he's ever seen. So I'm going to close out with Martin recounting the single best session of Kelly's that he's ever witnessed. Enjoy. We came around the point at Lance's Rights, Cardiac Village and the Mentorize, in the in the um, sort of early early nineties, and it had been as a rain squall, and there was a really stiff offshore blowing into the wave, and the way it was the most perfect I've ever seen Lance's Rights, or and uh, he paddled out there. It was quite, it, the the photographers weren't weren't stoked because it was overcast and raining and everything else. I don't think it was actually recorded. Um, and kind of six foot, and I've never seen anyone get so barreled for so long. Really, he's just basically playing with it, taking off as deep as you possibly could, and disappearing for the whole wave and coming out time and time again. It was the most perfect surf I've ever seen.